Well, good morning. I uh, bet you're wondering why Batman happens to be up there, the Batman symbol. Well, this week, the, some of the staff discovered that my, my real name, I'm Bruce Triplehorn, but I, my whole full name is Bruce Wayne Triplehorn. And so I don't know if my parents did that on purpose or not. I, they, never, they never told me. But uh, yeah, you know, that they discovered my, first, my, uh, uh, my secret identity. And so if you look at your prayer sheet, or the, I guess you call it the, the notes from the sermon, you'll see at the bottom it says Pastor Batman. That's what I'm known as in Brazil. It's been really neat having that name because it's gotten me through some police uh, checkpoints and passport control and different things like that. So it's worked out really well. Um, my topic today is, is I want to talk about two topics I've already shared with you guys, but I have never put it together, never used this passage of scripture, is worship and evangelism. Those are two things that are really big on my heart is how to share the gospel, what the gospel is, and what, uh, what worship is. So we're going to be looking at that. But just because Pastor Marty gave you a quiz last week, I thought I would give you a little quiz here. I've got, uh, I've got these figures up there. You can see somebody's shoveling and, and another person is with his family, guys playing soccer, guys giving his testimony, guys crying out to God in prayer, the other guys lifting his hands, making declarations, and there's somebody singing. Now, here's the question. Who is worshiping in this pastor? I want you to talk to the person next to you and saying, what do you think? Who's worshiping? What's your answer on this one? Go ahead, talk to the person near you, you know, just say, I think we come together as a body to interact and encourage one another. What do you think? What's the consensus here? Aha, uh -huh. okay, I, I, I would say possibly, you're right and half, halfway right, but maybe everyone is worshiping there. It's possible because, because worship is not limited to something we do in the four walls of this building, but maybe none of them are worshiping because we don't know what's in their minds. They could be thinking about the games yesterday and the things they got to do next week. You don't know. So I would say maybe everyone, maybe no one. But I'm glad you said everyone because you said it's not limited to a certain type of person. So second, uh, so, you know, I think that's a real common mistake is people will have a tendency to think that worship and praise and music are the same thing. How do you like the praise at our church, the, the, the worship at our church? I said, well, I don't know. I've, I've, I couldn't see what people's hearts are like in there. So I don't know what the worship was like because worship is more than just what's, what we do. Um, but it's who we are inside. I like to look at it this way. This, um, um, so I, the, first, the first part there is worship is the presence of God in everything we do. That's a challenge. I don't know if you have a challenge on that. This week I had to move a pile of, of um, what do you call it, uh, topsoil. I had to move a pile of to, uh, topsoil off our driveway. And I was trying to focus on God, but these dumb children's songs kept coming to my mind. And I go, what? God, I don't want to concentrate on you. We're so easily distracted from his presence. Um, so that's, that's what it means to worship is the presence of God and everything. And everything we do should reflect the character of Christ as we worship him. Praise, on the other hand, now remember this because I'm going to give you another question on this. Praise, on the other hand, is verbalizing our worship that's in our hearts. So I've got this in my heart, and what comes out of my, my mouth is what we call Praise. Okay, the Greek word is eologeo, which means a good fearer. You know, he's, he's a person that, eologeo uh, means, excuse me, a good word that he's uh, verbalizing the worship that's in his heart. And, of course, music is the last one. 
You can see that's more restrictive. Music is basically praise that is put to rhythm and melody. So they're, they're, they're different, but they're related. And I'll, I'll relate it this way. I've shown this slide before. I like this slide because worship, you see that big circle there? That's your whole life. That's everything you do and everything you think. And it's your whole life, whether it be your job, your school, or whatever it happens to be, your leisure time. Uh, and uh, I always say you can always tell a Brazilian if they're walking with God, if they're worshipers, by the way, they play soccer because it's sort of like they put God on the sidelines sometimes, you know. People do that in certain parts. But then, of course, then praise then is, is, can be testimonies, prayers, and declarations, those things. You know, when you just look to somebody and say, you know, God, um, God, you're holy, or just say to somebody, you know, he is a holy God. That's, that's a form of praise. And, it does, and then music then is just one way of expressing praise. Just to, just to kind of test you on this, um, why don't you turn to the person near you and give one quality of God and just say this, God is love, God is holy, God is sovereign, God is eternal, God is, is, is uh, unchanging. Whatever character, to give a character to God to somebody near you. Is that praise? There's two aspects of praise. You can be telling one another or you can tell God that he's holy. That's praise. I wanted you to do that because I want you to remember that. Remember that. It's verbalization. What comes out of your mouth is praise. As you talk about the character of God, you're reflecting your worship in your heart as it comes out. So, okay, I, got to I want to keep the test going here, okay? It says, it's, is it possible to sing praises and not be worshiping? Is it possible to be singing praises and not be worshiping? Any answers? Yeah, it is. How many of you have come in and started singing a hymn and you think, wow, this hymn is really good, you know, or, or you, you, well, you just then suddenly you start thinking, yeah, you know, did Ohio State play yesterday? I don't know. And then you, then you think, well, boy, I got that important appointment tomorrow, first thing on Monday morning. Your mind goes away and you sung the whole song and you didn't think on God the whole time. Anybody ever done that? I, I have. It's, it's hard sometimes because especially if you, you lose focus on that. One more question. Remember, remember the principle here. Is it possible to praise God without using your voice? Well, it's, it's possible to worship God without using your voice, but, but praise, by definition, is the good word that comes out of your mouth, right? So that's a trick question. I know that. Got one more question for you. It's, uh, I know it's getting close to Christmas time, and, and uh, we sing a lot of Christmas songs, and this one here is one of my favorites. I love it because it's so deep theology. It says, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And that's, a, that's a, a beautiful song. It talks about why Jesus came and everything. So, but there is a problem with this. It's not a theological problem. It's a, it's a historical problem. What's the problem with this? Anybody? Okay, go to the next slide. The problem with that is, is that um, it doesn't say in the scriptures they sang. We so much presume because they were praising God that they were singing. It says, the, the, verb in, in, uh, the word in Luke 2, 13 says this, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest on peace in, uh, among earth. It's, it, it, they were praising God. They were probably saying it. 
And I, I did some research on this this week. It was really interesting. Uh, you know, first of all, there are four, three other hymns that talk about the angels singing. Angels we have heard on high, the first Noel, come all you faithful. I hope I'm not ruining any of those songs. You can sing them, go ahead. Just, but uh, but it's, it is true, the angels didn't sing. In fact, I, re I read a thing. There's one place in the whole New Testament that, that says about angels singing. If you want to know, you can come up and ask me later where that is. But there's, there's, there's a, I read a thing. This guy even said this. He said, there's no, angels can't sing. Only the redeemed can sing. I thought, whoa, that's pretty heavy. I don't know. I, I have no problem with angels singing. But I just wanted to mention that because that's the way we look at it sometimes. Now look at A.W. I got a quote here for A.W. Tozer, and I want you to think about this. If you're not worshiping God on Monday the way you did the day before, perhaps you're not worshiping at all. I like how he says it sometimes, you know, we should come into our office on Monday morning and just say it's great to be in the presence of God because he's just as present there during the week. So I like that saying by, by Tozer. So what does worship have to do with missions? I told you that I was going to try to do two topics here, missions, evangelism, and worship and praise. I want to look at those two aspects and try to kind of tie them together a little bit. But what, what does it have to do with that? John Piper said this, missions exist because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. There are people here in Dublin that are not worshiping God. We need to call them to become worshipers. There are people in, in Africa where I may be going next week, to next week or, or next month, I'm not sure. But the, 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 go to where, why do I go to Africa? because there's people that aren't worshiping. We wanna see God worshiped in Africa. We wanna see him worshiped in all these places we're praying for, Ukraine and the North Korea. So worship, ex missions exist because worship doesn't. And he said this, worship is the purpose, which we just spoke about, and the fuel, the motivation for worship. I wanna say this, this is probably one of the more heavy statements I'm gonna to make today is, is that, that if anything comes in our life, any service or activity that is not fruit of our worship of God is inherently sinful. We need to make sure that everything that we do is the fruit of our worship of God. And that's why I call people not to, we call people to, I call people not to do stuff, I call people to worship. I, I was the um, mission, Lisa and I were re missionary residents in Grace College. And I said, don't be afraid of me. I'm not going to drag you on the mission field. I'm not, gonna I'm not even going to talk you into being a missionary. Because if I talk you into it, Satan will talk you out of it. He's much better at arguing than I am. So, but, but if you, it's a fruit of your worship, then, then you, can go on the, you can be a part of the mission field. But, you know, that's something we need to think about. Is that, is, uh, I, I, I said that my goal is not to talk people into being missionaries, but talk them into being worshipers. I don't want to talk you into being an evangelist. I don't want to talk you into anything other than being a worshiper of Jesus Christ. If you're a worshiper of Jesus Christ, you're going to fall into the, to the, um, his goal for your life. You're going to find that. Tozer said something else I like. He said, without a doubt, the emphasis on Christian teaching today should be worship. There is little danger that we shall become merely worshipers because, because, uh, and, and neglect the practical implication of the gospel. No one can long worship God in spirit and in truth before the obligation of holy service becomes too strong to resist. Fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. That is the divine order and it should never be reversed. So worship calls us Worship is what the basis of us living a life pleasing to God is. 
That's what it's, what it's all about. Now, I should define what worship is. What's worship? I, I haven't really told you what, what it is. I, I've wrestled with this for I don't know how many years of a good definition of worship, but I, I like this drawing here. I just want to say that there's two aspects we want to look at, the inner aspects of worship and the outer aspects, the root and the fruit, how, if, you, if you want to look at it that way. So um, the inward attitudes is what I call worship. Worship is in your heart. That's why worship in the spirit and the truth is in your spirit. It's in your, in your life. We're going to be talking about that in a minute. But then the outer expression is glorifying God, that whatever we do will shine forth the character of God. The word glorify means to shine forth. So what happens is the, the love of God comes into our lives and we reflect it back to the world around us. That's what glorifying God is. That's why worship is important. As the worship brings us aware of who he is, the glorifying God is what we do in response to that. So what does worship in God look like? Uh, what, are, what, what should be in my heart if I'm a worshiper of God? Well, the first thing I put up there is fearing God. That doesn't mean a cowering fear. That means that you're absolutely amazed at the awesome character of who God is. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but you're, you're in awe of God. You're honoring God as you hold him as precious above all else. And loving God is your relationship. You don't love him for, for what he does, but you love him for who he is. And then finally, submitting to God. The passage we're going to look at in John chapter 4, the word for worship means to bow down. And bowing down is a symbol of submission to God, of, of, of dependence upon him. And so we put our, our heads down below the level of his feet, showing our submission. So we're going to look at the Samaritan woman today. The Samaritan woman, I, I want to look at two things. I'm going to kind of go through the passage twice. You better go home and read it yourself to get the whole story. But it's interesting that it has an aspect of worship, becomes a subject of the first part, and the second part we look at the evangelism. Now, um, in uh, 970 B.C., right after King Solomon, I want to give a little background here. Right after King Solomon, if you show the map there, um, the kingdom is there's a northern part and a southern part of the kingdom. The kingdom of where the Jews were after King Solomon got chopped in half. I don't know if you knew that. For years I would read the Bible and go, what's this thing about Judah and Israel? I mean, what's the difference? Well, Judah is a southern kingdom, and it turns out that the capital was Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom was, um, uh, had Samaria. The next slide shows that uh, Samaria, uh, the, Samaria was actually a city, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, it was actually destroyed at one point. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim after that. Well, right smack in the middle, let me see if this is the right slide, right smack in the middle between the northern, northern part, which is, became known as Galilee, and the southern part, which is known as Judea, you'll see those in the New Testament, right smack in, behind, in between them was a place called Samaria. They named the whole capital after that, the whole situation. Now, Jesus could have, he did, he took a straight path through it looks, it goes, he went from, from the Jerusalem area up into his area of Galilee where he did a lot of his ministry and he went right through this, this Samaritan territory. Well, not all Jewish people did that. Some of them would take twice the trip long and they would go around uh, Samaria. They'd go off across the other side of, of, of the Jordan River. Now, if you read John chapter 4, you'll see that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Physically, he didn't need it. But the idea is, is that God had a divine appointment for him. We, God sometimes gives us divine appointments, you know, that we happen to run into some people. I was, I was on a, um, 
a ski lift one time and I started talking to people and this guy, young guy next to me, and uh, we were, it was really cold, everybody went inside, we are going up the, the ski lift, and he said, I, he said, we talked a little bit, and he goes, so where do you live? I said, well, I live in Brazil. At the time, I was living in Brazil. He goes, what do you do in Brazil? He said, I, I teach the Bible. He goes, oh, oh, God is incredible. This is the worst day of my life, and God puts you right there. God has divine appointments for us, and God had a divine appointment for, for Jesus this, and he would come into contact with um, he would come in contact with a Samaritan woman. Well, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to the discussion, and she raised a question with him. She said, so what is the place that we're supposed to do this ritual of bowing down? What's the place we're supposed to worship, as she thought of it, the physical act of doing some sort of religious ceremony? He goes, you guys, you, guys, you Jews say it's in the temple in Jerusalem. We say it's in Mount Gerizim, in the, in, uh, which they were close by to Mount Gerizim when they had this conversation. So which is the right place to worship? And the thing I love about Jesus, I, I always try to think of how he's answering the question because he always answers it in a way different than I would. And, you know, he, he gave kind of a, uh, a, a, a he kind of showed something that I didn't expect. I would expect him to say, well, of course, God ordained Jerusalem for the temple. That was where it was supposed to be. I mean, it was all, it's all obvious, right? Well, he said something crazy. He said, believe me, woman, that an hour is coming, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Whoa. Because if you look at the Old Testament, if you especially read Kings and Chronicles, you see them talking about the high places. You see about, about all that. So they're trying to get people to focus their worship in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a place. Now Jesus suddenly comes on the scene and says, it's not going to be there anymore. Jesus was saying essentially this. It says, he said, Jesus was about to radically change the nature of worship. I think that's important because he, Jesus changed everything, what we do and worship and things and, and, and what we do. But I want to mention another thing is um, you get the worship of, of uh, uh, you get the worship of the Samaritans and the Jews. I think chapter 4, verse 22 says this. It will help us to understand. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. In other words, they were a mongrel religion. They pulled in all of the pagan beliefs of the people around them and formed this heretical religion and, uh, and that the Jews rejected. He said, we Jews worship that which we know. So they had the word of God. They had all of the prophets, which the Samaritans didn't have. He said, because salvation is from the Jews. The Jews had the word of God, and that was supposed to spread out through the world. The Jews had the, especially Judah, was the line of the Messiah. And so salvation was coming from the Jews. And I, I like to put it this way. I, I read this somewhere, and I, I can't remember the reference to it, but the Samaritans had animated heresy. They were, ah, you know, they're really, really animated, but it was based on a false concept of God. But the, but the Jewish people would mechanically go through. They had the truth, but they would mechanically go through things. I see that in churches today. You see the, the charismaniac people, the ones that are the extreme it's all animated, but they don't understand the concept of God. And then on the other hand, we have traditionalists that we sit there with our arms closed and, and, and don't say anything. But, you know, we here at Northwest Chapel, we're not into dead orthodoxy or animated heresy, are we? So I want everybody to stand up right now. Okay, we're going to say hallelujah, right? You know hallelujah means? Everybody just says hallelujah, hallelujah. But hallel is to praise. 
Yah is for Yahweh. Hallel, Yah. Okay, so I want everybody to say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, not bad, but I think you'd shouted louder at the, uh, when Ohio State scored with one second left, didn't you? So, okay, this is way more exciting, right? So, one, two, three. Hallelujah! All right, okay, you can sit down. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I've often thought of that. We get so excited at sporting events, and we sit there with our arms crossed and the, the other ones. Uh, but anyway, Jesus said this. He said, this is a key verse. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and the truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Years ago, I started a, um, we planned a, uh, planted a church. I think it was in 95. We were planning a church in, in Belém, Brazil. And I thought, I'm going to find out what the church is. So I, I said, before I go to the scriptures, I want to find out what people think. And I came up with this thing I call the religious triangle, the, tri- the, the, the triangle. They said, oh, you have to have a building. A church has to have a building, okay? They also have to have a pastor. You've got to have a holy man. You've got to have a holy place. And there's got to be some sort of service. And it was really interesting because every group kind of had their own emphasis. No, it's the building. No, it's the holy man. No, it's the holy ceremony. And um, so they have these different, the, these different concepts there. Now, what happened is, uh, oh, I, I think this is kind of interesting. I, I, I was in Africa, and we were driving, we'd passed this one place there, and we stopped in this town where this pastor had lost somebody that was a friend of his. And Paul, the evangelist, said, oh, over there, Bruce, is the church. And I said, where? And he said, I said, right over there. He said, right over there. I said, I don't see a church. He goes, no, that, and he goes, oh, the church building is over there I do that sometimes I've done that that people will say where's your church and I'll say I don't know I think some are in Dublin and some are in uh in Hilliard and and some are over in Arlington oh you mean you don't know where your church is yes it's not the building okay so we look at that they have this holy triangle now Jesus did something remember I said he's changing things look at Hebrews 10 well you don't have to look at it. it's going to go up on the board Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, he said, Every high priest, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sin. It's not efficacious. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins, uh, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, you know what's interesting about that? You see, the, um, the synagogues had a seat. Jesus sat in the seat when he exposited Scripture. Next slide. But, uh, yeah, see, that's the seat of Moses in a synagogue in the Jewish time and Jesus' time. But they had this thing, and um, they didn't have, in the temple, there was no chair. Isn't that amazing? They have all, this, uh, all the things, the candelabra, the altars, and the table, and all that, the showbread. But there was no seat. You know why? Because if one time the guys say, oh, finally, no sin sacrifice. Somebody came with a sin time. People were sinning all the time. And so they never rest. The priest could not sit down because it was constant. So Jesus gave the one perfect sacrifice on the cross. And at that point, there was no more need for a specific ceremony given to them. He eliminated the holy, the holy ceremony. Now, Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 said, Therefore, brothers... Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, 
He has opened us through his, the curtain, that is, his flesh. Now see, in the, in the temple of the Jewish people, there was a veil, and this veil was several inches thick. It wasn't like the cheap, sheer curtains we have today. This was a heavy, heavy thing, and it symbolized the barrier that existed between God and man, that nobody could go behind that veil. King David, who was one of the best worshipers in the Old Testament, the most dynamic worshiper, he didn't have access to the Holy of Holies. He couldn't go through there. Uh, he couldn't go. Only the high priest once a year could go in there to go into the very presence of God, and he had to do all these rituals to go in. But you know what? The veil was torn. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was ripped, and notice it was ripped from top to bottom. It was ripped because God did it and opened up the access that we have to the presence of God. So, you know, David was an incredible worshiper, but we have access to the presence of God everywhere we are, everywhere we go, and what will every, everywhere we do, something David never had. And then and in Hebrews 10, 21, so there was no need for a holy place. The tabernacle, the temple, no, there was no need. In fact, Hebrews predicted it would be destroyed. Hebrews 10, 21 and 22 says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean interior and our, from an evil conscience and our, and our bodies washed with pure water. That's our actions. So Jesus cleansed us. He's the high, high priest. And so now we've got access directly to God and we don't have to go through a priest or a pastor or imam or a rabbi. We have exact, uh, direct access to the presence of God. So the question is, why do we not see that happening today? Why aren't we worshiping? What stands in our way? Well, I think one of the things is familiarity breeds contempt. You've probably heard that expression. When we become accustomed to his mercy and everything he does, we stop being amazed. When we stop being amazed, we stop worshiping. We should be amazed. I always remember we had a small group in Brazil, and uh, Alex was there. He's a new believer, and he goes, he, talked, he had a real funny way of talking. He goes, brothers, oh, it was amazing what I read in the Word today. What was it, Alex? Oh, it was just the most incredible thing. And he said, what was it, Alex? Everybody started moving forward, hanging out, you know, on the, the, the Word. He said, what was it, Alex? He goes, it was amazing. Moses lifted up his, his staff, and he parted the Red Sea, and they came through. And I could see every person kind of go, Oh, I knew this story since I was in kindergarten. I tried to enter into that with them. It was amazing to be amazed at him. So, you know, what Brazilian, what Americans, I love taking Americans to the Amazon because they get amazed at the roots and the trees and the fruits and the birds and the insects and the water and everything. And they get amazed. But, but Brazilians, that are, and they're hanging out the windows of the boats, you know, taking pictures of all the stuff. This is what the Brazilians do. They go, they see it every day. I'm used to this stuff. So I want to ask you this. Do you stand in awe of God when you sing certain songs, when you, when you open your Bible? Do you stand in law when you see the clouds, the rain, the sun, and the snow? Um, or when you're with other worshipers like we are now? When things don't go as planned, do you see God's hand in those things? That's important to, to, to question to ask. Now, this isn't the end of the service, but I wanted to pause at this point as we're talking about this point and reflect on the character of God. So stand up and let's sing. And think of the character of God as you, as you listen here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There you go. Um.
Okay, um, going back to the key verse, going back to the key verse, notice the last part, it says, the, 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 for they, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. That's something that's so key that I want you to see, that God is not seeking missionaries, not seeking uh, elders or pastors or missionaries or evangelists. He's seeking worshipers above all else. That's what he's seeking. And what kind of worshipers is he seeking according to this passage of scripture? Well, he's seeking, he's seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. I wish I had time to develop this because the spirit, I believe there is a spirit and a soul in a people. They're, they're interrelated in some ways. They're intertwined. But the spirit of a person is what has been regenerated so that we can worship him, so that we can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit that we can live, we become, because he's changed us through the cross, we become walking temples in the presence of God and can worship him anywhere that we, uh, wherever we happen to be. Now there is a value, of course, to coming together. The Hebrews 10 also says that, that it's important that we come together. But the reason we come together is to stimulate one another to worship. That's what happens, and there's something special when the body of Christ comes together and we worship in conjunction. But worshiping a spirit is beyond the intellectual, although the mind is engaged. It's beyond the emotional, although we can become emotional, but it's something is spiritual of nature, the worship of God, and, and, it, and it notice it's lowercase. There is an uppercase one in, in uh, Philippians 3 that's worshiping by the spirit, but this is worshiping in the spirit because the question is where should we worship? And it says the truth as well. We need to understand who God is. We, we, we study the Bible to learn who God is so that we can better worship him. It's not that we're going to be given a quiz someday like I gave you earlier about the character of God, but it's just the richer you have in the character of God, the more you can worship him. Um, I've got over 150 to 200 different qualities of God and names of God in a book that I use to worship him. Um, so it's worship in spirit and truth. But there is one aspect I want to comment on before we go, go on. We have a little bit of time. But I want to comment on this. The worship really is complete, I think, in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's, it's complete when we offer ourselves. It says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So really, there is an offering and it's an offering of ourselves. It's a submitting of ourselves to God that makes worship. So we see God, we respond by offering ourselves to God. Um, but I want to go on and talk about this whole thing of this passage on evangelism. I know I'm leaving a little bit of time. Somebody in the first service asked me if I'm going to teach a class on evangelism. I'd like to do that. But I want to give some... Um, um, some tips on evangelism. First of all, I think I want to say in this passage of scripture, you know, if you remember, we'll talk about this in a minute, Jesus talked to her and she got so ch shocked by what he said, she left her, her face there and ran into the city and say, hey, uh, this guy is out there, he, he, he told me every type of thing I've done, could this be the Messiah? And everybody went out to see who this woman had talked about. She was a perfect evangelist. A lot of people believed because of this woman. But she didn't know anything. She knew very little. But she knew who Jesus was, and she knew that he offered forgiveness. And, uh, and so she shared that. That's what we need to do. It says in, John, in Mark chapter 5, he said, 
he, he said, the guy wanted to go, he cast a demon out of legion out of the sky, and the guy wanted to go with him, and he said, no, go back to your own people. Tell them what God has done for you and how he had mercy on you. That's the best evangelistic message you can preach, how God changed your life. I think that's how we need to start our evangelism oftentimes. I want to share something with you that changed my life. But I think the first thing I'll say, the first step, is uh, to break the barriers. And Jesus broke down a lot of barriers. You know, sometimes if we go to people that are different, maybe a different race, a different culture, different language group, there's a lot of people that from other countries, and a lot of Americans just kind of look at them funny, and we, and we, instead of approaching them, but when we approach them, just to show respect to them, listen to them, we get a good response from them. You know, of course, Jesus, by asking a favor, sometimes asking a favor is a good thing to do because you put yourself in a servant's position. So Jesus asked her for a drink, and she said this, there's a big surprise in the language that she used. How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They do associate, but it's funny, some of the laws they have, you can buy food, but you can buy stuff, you can do an exchange, but you can never become indebted to a Samaritan. And so by asking in a favor like that, there was a shock. The other thing was she's a woman, and she was considered a, by the Jewish people, a Samaritan woman is perpetually unclean. And so by drinking something that she had, he would become ceremonially unclean by the by, uh, minds of the Jews. That's why she was so surprised at his, his response. And, of course, you know, he, he talked to her. He broke down the racial barrier. She, he was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a male. She was a female, the gender barrier. And then, of course, the religious barrier. She, he was moral, and she was immoral. Nicodemus knew who she was, but uh, knew who he was, but this Samaritan woman had no idea who this Jesus was, wasn't seeking him out. The second thing I think, this is a big point, I think, in evangelism that's interesting, is make people curious. Lisa did this this week, and I, I, I'll always remember one time I was coming into Columbus on the airplane. I got to talking to the guy next to me, and he says, so what do you do? And depending on the person, I'll say, well, I teach the Bible, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I teach the Bible in Brazil. They'll say, well, what do you do in Brazil? I say, I teach the Bible. And he kind of looked at me and said, I don't like religion. And I said, you know what, neither do I. I can't stand religion. And that created curiosity. And that's what Jesus did. He said, you must be born again. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? He used three cryptic things in this chapter. He talked about about the living water. He talked about the food that he had and and the harvest. He used three cryptic things that the people didn't understand. But it begs a question. They, have, they, they get curious and they want to ask you something about that. That's a good test to throw something out a little bit cryptic. Sometimes I'll, Brazilians will ask me, are you an evangelical? I'll say, it depends. They say, well, what do you mean? I say, well, it depends. If you're talking about these crazy religious groups that exist that you call evangelicals, I, I'm not. But if you're talking about somebody that believes in the evangel or the, the gospel, yes, I do. I am an evangelical in that sense. So then that, that begs a question. So, so Lisa had that same type of experience this week uh, talking about, you know, not liking religion. And, of course, this is what he said. If you knew, Jesus said this. If you knew who you were talking to, if you really understood who I am, and you knew what I had to offer you, which is living, you would ask me, and I would give you living water, water that imparts life. And so she looks at him. She goes, well, sir, uh, you don't, and notice how she called him sir. You have no bucket, and the well is deep. And where then do you get this living water? He said, if you, and he said, if you knew me, 
and you knew who the living water was that I had to offer, which is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. He said, you would ask me, and I'd have given it to you. And, and so then that led to a long, long discussion. And, and uh, finally he said to her, go call your husband. And so in three, he wanted to show the need for a savior. I think this is where we rush it so much in our gospel presentations today. We rush people into a decision because we don't allow them to understand the depth of their sin. So he said, he said to her, go call, uh, go call your husband. And, and she said, well, I have no husband. And he said, he said, well, you're right. You don't have a husband. And he said, you've had five husbands. And the man you're sleeping with right now, he's not, he's not your, uh, he belongs to another. You're in an adulterous affair. So that was pretty heavy at that point. And so I think we really need, I mentioned sin, righteousness, and judgment. We need to really allow people to come to grips with the depth of sin because my sin is really huge. It's way, I'm way down here on a righteous level. God is way up here on the righteousness level. And that separation is so huge, so big, there's no way that I could ever bridge that. That's what we need people to understand. Not just that they commit sins. Everybody commits sins. But the depth of their sin needs to be dealt with. So anyway, the, last, the, the issue is not really sin, the sins that we do, but the very nature we are. Uh, there was a theologian from Africa that made the statement that I thought was interesting. He said, he said, as long as we Africans think of sin as just actions, then we'll never come to true repentance because we can change our actions, but we can't change our nature. Do you hear that? We can change our actions, but we can't change our nature. Only Jesus Christ can do that. That's why I need a Savior. If I could change my behavior and that was it, then I could save myself. But the third, fourth thing is show them Jesus. Um, look at the progression here at this, at this thing. Show them Jesus. So the first thing I, I noticed, he called him sir. It was a, a, a term of respect that she had for him, but it wasn't like Lord. I, per, I perceive that you're a prophet. Okay, well, yeah, that's good that she realized a prophet. That was pretty heavy for a Samaritan to recognize a Jew as a prophet. And then she said, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called the Christ. I think she's starting to suspect that this may be something incredible, someone different that she's talking to. And then Jesus said to her, I am he who is speaking to you. And I put the I am in capitals because that's the way the Greek is. Egwemi, I am. That comes from Exodus 3, which is God's term for himself. I am God. So, you know, no wonder she left the vase there. He said, I am. Whoa, who is talking, the one who's talking to you. And she was just so shocked because she realized she was in the presence of a holy God. That's why she left things behind there. So we need to really realize that the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. We can't understand the gospel unless we understand who Jesus is. And people today are ignorant of who Jesus is in our world around us. Even people in the church say some horrifying things about not understanding the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and what he did. The disciples were shocked when they came back and the, they was talking to this woman. And they say, Master, eat, eat, eat. We bought this food. You've got to eat. He said, I, I have a food that you don't understand. I'll read that specifically. Oops. He said, I, the, I have a food to eat that you don't know about. Well, somebody come here. Here Jesus is given a cryptic answer. My food is to do the will of him who has finished his work. He, what he's saying is, is that the real satisfaction, more so than the best food and drink you could ever imagine, is sharing the gospel with people, of, of talking and doing his work. So um, 
Oops. Te technology kills. But see, then he said to them, don't you guys say that there are still four months till, till the harvest? That's my, uh, my paraphrase of that is never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. So they had this day, yeah, someday you'll, you'll do that. And then, then, he said, um, then he said, you know, you see these people coming? He said, for verse, uh, the next verse in 35, he said, behold, I tell you, your eyes Open your eyes and see the fields, that they are white for the harvest. So he was saying to the disciples, look, you are not aware of this thing that's happening right now. You're not seeing God at work in this Samaritan's lives. And, uh, but I got a question for you. What has to happen before we can harvest? What has to happen? I plowed my garden under because the squirrels ate all my corn, but I'm still going to go out and harvest, Right? No, what's necessary? You have to sow, right? Some, if somebody doesn't sow, you're not going to have a harvest. So Jesus said this. This is, and uh, I'm finishing soon. Jesus said this. He said, uh, um, he said, one sows and another reaps. I sent you out to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you've come into their, into their labor. You know what Jesus is saying? Two things he said. The first thing he said is that there's a difference between sowing and reaping. And I would say, people, people like, like me who are evangelists would like say, okay, get out there. The fields of Dublin are ripe for the harvest. Let's get out there and share. Uh, Brazil, Brazil is ripe for the harvest. I've got to tell you this. I don't think anywhere in our world practically is ripe for the harvest right now because people aren't sowing. People have an ignorance of who Jesus Christ is. We need to plant the seeds of the gospel. Marty mentioned the seeds of the gospel. We have to plant that to be able to have a harvest someday. And it's interesting. The other thing he said is the, the word for labor there is, la is, is labor until exhaustion. It's saying there that we, the real is. He said basically this. Somebody else has done all the hard work. You get in there and you get the privilege of just harvesting. And that's, that happens. We need harvesters and we need sowers. I, I always love, you know, but the hard part is planting. I used to love to go to my grandma's because I would pick, this, pick the cherry. She had this really great cherry tree. So I would love eating that. That's easy. That's the fun part. But the hard part is sowing. So I got a question for you, each of you. Are you sowers or are you reapers? Are you a worshiper? Are you just a person that sits in the pew? What are you? Because God has called us, God, need, God is calling us to be, part, be worshipers. And the fruit of our worship should be to sow around us. Some of you have, may have a gift of harvesting, and that would be the fruit of your worship. So that's my question I have for you. My challenge for you this week is that you would read the Bible maybe with different eyes. I, somebody said that in Brazil one time. They got a new Bible because they started looking at it as a book of worship. They started looking for the character of God. So get a notebook and start writing down the character of God. We sang in how great, uh, um, uh, how great is our God. We sang so many neat characteristics of God, so many neat stuff. And so start a list of all the character of God and start doing that. And also I'd like to challenge you this. Look at the book of Revelation. Instead of looking at it from a prophetic standpoint, which is good, Look at it from a worship standpoint. The richest passages of worship are in the book of Revelation. And sometimes we miss that because we're looking at prophecy. So read through and make the words of the, 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 
of the, the people in there, your words. Sometimes it's angels saying again, maybe it's the redeemed, maybe it's a different group that they're, they're talking about. But look and, and seek worshiper. God is seeking worshipers. By the way, I'll, I'll challenge you this. this. is the last thing I'll say. Is I, I wrote down in my, my book, a prayer book, I, I wrote the, the key verse today. It's a, you know, it says, you know, a time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for this is who God is seeking. And I read that verse every day and I say, God, if you're seeking worshipers, teach me to worship. I want to be one of those people. I want to be one of your worshipers. Pray that prayer. So look at this passage this week and, and study that. So let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for your word that points us the truth of Scripture, that we know who you are. You've revealed yourself to us. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross that gave us access to the Holy of Holies and that we can we can. We can worship you better than David did, and we're not doing that, God. We confess that. God, heal our minds because we're, our minds are so undisciplined that we have trouble focusing on you. I pray, Father, that you would focus our minds and give us strength that we would do that. And pray that we as Northwest Chapel, that you would bring us together to, to do together what you've called us to do individually, to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would be a worshiping church as well as a church that's bearing fruit in evangelism. Thank you for this time. Thank you for each person. I pray that their, your presence would go with them through the week. In Jesus' name, amen.